Hello and welcome to the Naval Air Podcast. My name is Mike and I'll be your host. If you missed episode number one, we went over the, well, I went over an introduction of what this podcast will be about. And then I went on to describe the training pipeline for uh, an aviation anti-submarine warfare operator, also known as AW, in the United States Navy in the early 80s time frame. And I'm pretty specific with that because I'm sure in nowadays the AW's job is different and their training pipeline is probably different. So I have to qualify it with a with a time frame. And if you also listen to the first show, you do know that that's basically what this show is all about. We're trying to catalog and record and make a good history of what life was like back in naval aviation, naval aviation at that time. We also hope to catalog now and even before my time. Also, if you remember the previous show, uh, the training pipeline was outlined. Basic training, Naval Air Crew Candidate School, Search and Rescue School, ah, AWA School, all in a certain order. So, and I also said on that show that we're going to go in chronological order. So without waiting too much longer, I think we'll keep housekeeping to the end. We'll start with... Naval Air Crew Candidate School, also known as NACCS. Uh, I think they call it NACCS now, but we didn't call it that at the time. All right, so the date is January 14th, 1983. That's a Friday. That's a day I graduated from basic training at the Recruit Training Center in Great Lakes, Illinois. Um, the thing was that once you graduate from basic training, you had the whole weekend off. You graduated on Friday. Everybody partied Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Starting Monday morning, they started shipping out uh, the recruits, uh, two companies at a time. Uh, we were Our companies were later in the battalion, so we actually didn't depart, or I didn't depart for Pensacola until Thursday, the 20th of January. Now, I was looking through my old records for the research portion. I found out that I cost the United States Navy $145 was my airfare to fly from O'Hare in Chicago to the airport in Pensacola. Now, my sister company, there was another guy who was going to become an AW as well, so we traveled together. And he was a couple years older than me. I think he was like 24. I was 18. And at our stop at the airport was either Tampa or Atlanta. I can't remember at this point. He brought me my first... He didn't buy it for me. He introduced me to the Vodka Collins. Uh, very tasty adult beverage at the time. It's actually been my staple uh, mixed drink ever since then. So to that individual, I, I remember his name, and I'm, I don't know if I should be giving out names or not. Some people are very private. They want to protect their identities on the Internet. They don't want to get their stuff out there. Uh, we call him J.O. How's that? J.O., Introduced me to the Vodka Collins, and I've been drinking it ever since. Uh, 24 years now? Thanks. Anyway, so J.O. and I, we spent some time in an airport. We changed planes again, like I said, in, in Tampa or Atlanta. I can't remember which. We flew Eastern Airlines, an, uh, an airline that doesn't exist anymore, and made our way to Naval Air Station Pensacola. Of course, it was an all-day thing. I mean, we got out, basic training, we got up. Packed our stuff. The bus took us off at a certain hour. Spent some time in the airport at O'Hare. Waited, flew, waited some more, flew. Um, and I remember 
showing up to the well, we call it the quarter deck. That's the the quarter deck or the duty office, depending. Sometimes they're one in the same spot, but that's where you show up at any command in the Navy and check in. <clears throat> so we get there. It was dark. Of course, it was January, so it got dark early anyway. But it seems to be a theme in the in the military or the Navy was that anytime you did a change of station or you're moving on to the next thing, you almost always showed up in the evening. Which just made it that much more difficult to get your bearings. All right, so we show up to Naval Air Crewman Candidate School. We had the school, the, the classrooms and staff offices, uh, and the barracks for the school were all the one, all one building. Um, and it was at the end of a street. A street intersected, you know, made a T. And past that intersection was the key wall for Pensacola Bay, which was maybe 100 yards to 200 yards long, big, long, flat cement area. And then there was the water. So we were pretty close to the water. It was a nice building. I'm sure it's still the same building they're in now. Um, two stories. Second floor was all the barracks, some the the heads, the toilets, right, the showers, all that. Um and like four wings with connecting, it's like a big H. How's that? A flat, wide H. So what the normal up and down parts of the H were kind of shorter, and the crossbar H was kind of longer, and that was all the rooms upstairs. And then downstairs was <clears throat> classrooms, staff offices, things like that. Now, we didn't do the whole, all of our training in this one building. Training was spread out throughout Naval Air Station Pensacola, but that's just what our building was like. So we check in. Now, keep in mind, we're just we just come from basic training where you didn't do anything unless you were told to do it. So if no one, <laughs> if no one told you to do anything, you just stood there. So we went from basic training to Naval Air Crewman Candidate School, which the Navy called a C school, C as in Charlie. Um, it was a school for not people always fresh out of basic training. It was for people that were doing some career changes in the military that were they've been reassigned and now they needed to learn some air crew duties or they got some flight flight status whatever so air crew school had a, the class makeups were people that were had been in for a while and people that had been in not so long so either way they weren't the type to try to maintain control of the people to show up from basic training versus the people that had been out in the fleet for a while it was all they're all the same to them so we show up to Naval Air Crew Candidate School, it's probably 7 or 8 o'clock at night. I don't remember exactly what. We check in. They give us a room. They tell us, do not unpack too much because our class will convene the following Monday, which was the 24th of January. And we'd be changing rooms. So don't don't unpack too much. Dig out some dungarees to wear for the next day. Uh, keep a dress uniform handy. And um, muster show up down here in this room the, the the quarter deck they call it come down here it's probably 7.30 in the morning tomorrow so go upstairs here's your rooms get out of here now here you got oh and there's a pool table in this room too I remember some guys are shooting pool and some vending machines people just kind of hanging around so he shows us, tells us go upstairs down the hall there's your room you'll find it so we go in we drop in and and uh there was two other dudes in there already that had shown up from uh, 
the recruit training command in San Diego. They had traveled together like J.O. and I had. Um, one of them had a TV already. <laughs> they had a place set up. So we kind of kind of unpacked a bit. We got to know our du- you know, our buddies here. And uh, that was pretty much it. Lights out. Next morning, we go downstairs like we're told. Now, uh, again, our class was to convene on the 24th of January. Today's it's now Friday the 21st. And the Navy is not one to let you sit around waiting for stuff to happen. So if your class hasn't convened yet, they're going to put you to work, and they put us to work cleaning. There are some conference rooms, or classrooms essentially, that have needed being swept. We had to mop the decks. We had to wax them, clean some restrooms, heads. Excuse me. I'm going to use Navy terminology. Clean the heads, swab the decks, wax the decks, basically empty the trash, kept us busy, go to lunch, Chow Hall is right across the street. Now, in all my time in the Navy, out of all the naval air stations and naval bases and Chow Halls that I ate on, that Chow Hall at Naval Air Station Pensacola, right across the street from us, set the bar so stinking high that I was literally spoiled for the next four years. Um, it was so good. So anyway, go to lunch, come back. Mess around, clean some more stuff for another hour and a half or so, and then about two, two thirty. Okay, you guys are done for the day. Come back, come back down here on Monday morning, seven thirty, wearing uh, service dress uniform. We call them gunfighters. Some people call them Johnny Cash outfit. It's not, it's not a working uniform. It's well, kind of. It's a working office uniform. Okay, it's, it's semi dress. Service dress was the t- technical term. All right, show up in your service dress uniform at this time. Your class will convene. We had the weekend to kill. More people started rolling in from various basic training facilities. The rooms, our rooms filled up. We ended up with <clears throat> the rooms were five people. Um, myself, my traveling partner Jo, uh, the two guys from San Diego, and a Marine. Yes, the Naval Air Crew Candidate School was also the school for Marines that we were going to be air crewman in the marine so we had a marine in our room pretty squared away guy actually pretty low key for marine too all right so monday morning january 24th we we're class 8315 we were convened we were shown our instructors a class leader was designated who was the senior class he was the senior student of the class and what was supposed to happen was well let's see I'm trying to do this from memory. We were told we were learning some survival techniques, land survival, a deep water environment survival. We would be swimming a lot. We would be running a lot. Um, uh, six boxing lessons. <laughs> Basically, three boxing lessons and then three boxing matches. Um, I can't remember what else was in the syllabus. A whole bunch of stuff. First aid, CPR, some book learning various things associated with being an air crewman in the United States Navy. But the first thing to learn was physiological, the physiological effects of flying. And we went to the Naval Air Medical Institute, or NAMI, and that's where we would learn about vertigo. We would learn about um, hypoxia, which is oxygen deprivation. We would learn about how your inner ear can mess with your head, how your eyes can be fooled, uh, all kinds of stuff. 
um, if you want to associate, not associate, if you want to have an understanding of what happened, the movie officer and gentleman believed they took, they shot a scene in a pressure chamber where they take you up to 30,000 feet, have you take off your oxygen masks and see how quickly you lose control. Now, we didn't have anybody freak out like they had in the film, but it's really a good, a good, uh, a good example of what, what was going on. So the NAMI stuff took about, I want to say it was two days, maybe three days, with the pressure chamber being the last evolution. That's the, it's a Navy term of, a collection of events, an evolution. But we were also introduced to the cross-country course, also called the C course. We were also introduced to the O course, the obstacle course, also called the O course. And we ran as a class everywhere. The first, one of the reasons I think the NAMI stuff takes two days is because that's how long it takes for you to get your PT gear. And we didn't run in regular uniform. We ran in PT gear. And no one wears different PT gear, but he wears the same stuff. So we did our NAMI bit. Uh, some interesting, real interesting stuff. Like, um, let's see. Put us in a big a theater, kind of like a room, like a lecture hall on a college campus. With a little stage down there. And they turn out all the lights. And they turn on one single light up high in the back of the stage. And they ask you if the light's moving. And after a couple of minutes, people start shouting out, yeah, yeah, it's moving, yeah, it's moving, yeah. Well, then they turn on the lights, and you can see that it's a little light fixed to the wall. It doesn't move, they tell you. It's your eyes, because your eyes are constantly wiggling. And that constant wiggle of your eyes makes it seem like that light is moving. Another thing they did, which was actually kind of freaky scary if you were a flyer, is they stick you in this, they took one volunteer, and they showed you it was a demonstration of how your ears can be fooled. Because your ears are what tell you you have a sense of motion. That you're leaning this way, leaning that way. It's the fluid sloshing around in your ears that tell you what's going on. Take one volunteer. They stick him in this chair that spins. Spins in a circle. They blindfold him. And they have him put his hands, his fists on his knees with his thumbs pointed up. And we're going to spin you. And we want you to point your thumbs in the direction that the chair is spinning. Okay, so he sits there, they blindfold him, they start spinning, and sure enough, he points his thumbs to his right, because that's the way he's spinning. And they're spinning, and the chair's spinning, and then after, oh, say two minutes, he points his thumbs up. He's still spinning, but he doesn't think he is. And the reason for that is, is because, again, the fluid in your ear moves. When the fluid stops moving, you think you've stopped moving, but you still are. So it's one of those things, if you can't see, and you're spinning, and you don't have any visual cues. Your ears can, your ears would sense your motion can be fooled easily. And then the last thing for NAMI on the second or third day of it was a pressure chamber ride. It took the whole class, all of us, put us in this big room. First, they had to teach us how to use the oxygen equipment. You know, put a helmet on, snap on your face mask. And there's three levels of uh, of oxygen flow depending on what altitude you're at or how you have it set. Now, one of the settings is the oxygen only flows when you breathe in. You breathe in, oxygen flows to the mask and to your mouth. Uh, the next setting is a gentle breeze that's constantly tickling your face or the, what's under the, the oxygen mask, just constantly reminding you that there's air oxygen flowing and you need to breathe. 
And the last one, which is called, oh goodness, I can't remember. I think it's forced air or something, where if you get a certain height, that gentle tickle turns into like a full force gale blasting into your face to remind you to breathe because you're way up high and you need to keep yourself oxygenated. So we get up, we get in there, they take the pressure out and simulate that you're 30,000 feet with no oxygen in the room and they have this thing blasting your face and everyone had to uh, punch the little radio button and check in. You had to say your name and whatever number you were sitting in, which was harder than you might think because this thing's blasting air in your face. You're shouting. Say your name, your last name and your number, shouting. Then they came around and told everyone, okay, you're two ta- you two guys will play patty cake. You've seen that. They gave me a pad, a paper, and a pencil. Told me to start with 100 and then subtract 7. 100, 93, 86, whatever. You start doing math. So they gave everyone their little tasks. Okay, we're at 30,000 feet. Masks off. And you start doing your stuff. Now, you've been to class already, and they told you the effects of hypoxia. First, you'll feel happy and giddy. You'll feel good. That's the first sign, and that's the sign that you need to put your mask back on or whatever. But they also told us, don't just put your mask back on. Make sure you get an instructor's eye and say, look, I want to put my mask back on because I am, I recognize my effects of hypoxia. All right, so I'm doing my math, you know, and sure enough, you feel really good. <laughs> and that lasts for maybe 30 seconds to a minute and then after you feel really good you start feeling tingly and like crap so i hit i hit the euphoria phase and i'm like okay i'm recognizing hypoxia and i'm trying to catch the eye of an instructor put my mask back on and it there were two or three of them in the room and they're watching all the other guys because i think there's probably 20 of us in there and finally got one guy's attention hey i'll put my mask back on but by then i moved out of the euphoria phase and i moved into the tingly feeling a crap phase where you, you, it's very hard to control your motor functions. It's very hard for me to plug my mask, you know, attach my mask back to the side of my helmet and get any oxygen back on. But it's one of those things the Navy likes to make you understand or the military as a whole, because the Army will do it for gas masks. Make you, they make you experience it where they can so you understand deep down in your gut all the training that you've gone through really does do something and it they're they're serious when they tell you that the army i say they they put gas mask and they put you in a room they throw some tear gas or cs gas you know light mild form of it inside a room you're walking around going hey this isn't so bad and they tell you take your mask off and about five seconds later your tears are streaming out of your eyes and you run out the room so you know the stuff works okay so nami's over and now we're starting our regular mixed up not mixed up, but uh, variety, okay? That's what I mean by mixed up. Not mixed up as in messed up or screwed up, but a variety of tasks. And we're going to class. We're learning CPR. We're being tested on CPR. We're learning first aid. You know, we're learning all these basic things. We're running the cross-country course, the C course. Um, again, based on your age. Wait a minute. I don't even know if it was based on age. To pass air crew school, you had to run the C course in a certain amount of time. It was a mile and a half. It was up and down hills. had sand traps and stuff in it. And I want to say it was 11 minutes. You had to finish the C course in 11 minutes. The obstacle course also was a certain amount of time. Uh, you had an 8-foot wall. No, a 6-foot wall and 12-foot wall. 
balance beams, mazes, all kinds of tires, the usual. And I think you had eight minutes to do the O course. Some of the other subject matter was DWS, Deep Water Environment Survival Training. That's where they, because, you know, Navy aviator, you're going to be flying in over deep water a lot. You might find yourself having to eject or bail out from your aircraft and find yourself floating in the water for a while until help comes. So they told you, they showed you how to float. Or, well, no, actually they tested you. You had to tread water for... You had to tread water for a certain amount of time with a flight suit and flight boots on. Then you had to tread water for an even longer time with your helmet and your survival vest and gloves and all that stuff on. Uh, well, actually, the the full gear, you had to tread water for so long with the full gear on. Then after a certain amount of time, you were allowed to take your helmet off and you help that use it for flotation. You could... At that time, helmets were helmets floated, so you could like put it on your bottom and help you stay up. Um, let's see what else did we do. We, had to, we did a swim. We swam a mile in a pool wearing a flight suit. Of course, that was later. We did all this. You do all these things working up to these tests. Okay, we did a lot of running. Every time we went to some course or something, we ran there. We did PT. We would run from the school to the beginning of the C course, stretch, run the C course, then run back, go to the classroom, sit down, then run to the gym where the boxing lessons were going to be, um, run to the pool for the helo dunker. Yeah, let's talk about the helo dunker for a bit. Now, in previous classes, they did the single seat dunker, which is what, you, again, you saw in the film, Officer and Gentleman, a little contraption that slides in the pool, flips upside down, you're supposed to find your way out. Well, in our day, they used the Hilo Dunker. Hilo Dunker was like a big 55-gallon drum, sat on its side, attached to a hoist. They could spin, and it had a place for six people to sit inside with windows cut out uh, and a door to simulate the door. And they would, everyone had to do four egresses from the Hilo Dunker. And each time you did an egress, you sat in a different seat. So the first egress was any exit without a blindfold. So, you know, the thing would hit the water. They'd Step one is to grab onto the aircraft to give yourself a reference point. So if the aircraft flipped upside down, you'd still have the spatial relationships of where things were fixed in your head because you've, you're actually holding on to the aircraft. The second egress was everyone out the same exit, the main, what would be the main door of this helicopter you're in. Everyone out the same exit, not blindfolded. Again, thing gets lowered, you grab onto the reference point, thing rolls over, you have to wait till the aircraft stops moving, and then you leave. So you're not, you're not even allowed to undo your seatbelt till you feel the aircraft stop moving. And ostensibly, in the real life, the aircraft's going to hit the water, stop moving, and then start sinking, right? So <laughs> as soon as you feel it stop flailing about, you would want to get out before it took you down with it. So the third egress was blindfolded nearest exit. Again, thing hits the water, reference point, wait for the thing to stop moving, under your seatbelt, out you go. And the last egress, I'm sure you can guess now, was everyone out the same exit blindfolded. And what I mean by blindfolded were these little swimmer, swimmer goggles painted black. So, And they have divers in there that can watch, so you can't cheat and peel these things off and get out. But at this point... You, 
You've already been swimming at least once a day. You've been watching this stuff go on. If you're not, if you're not ready to do this, and they, and they, they give you a good long time to watch too. You get to watch all the other people doing it and see if somebody freaks out or flails about or you know, just gets you nervous to watch this big thing hitting the deck, not hitting the deck, hitting the water from a good ten feet up, and then start spinning around, and the instructor's yelling at people, "Reference point! Come on, move this, do that." So, and again, oh, you're also wearing a flight suit, boots, helmet gear. None of this stuff was done in your swim trunks. It was all done, all dressed up because, again, when you, if you're flying for real and you hit the water, you're not going to be you know, in your trunks. You're going to be decked out. Let's see what else did they teach us? Alright, so D-West. D-West was also about... Okay, so D-West was about floating, deep water environment survival training. D-West. Tread water, floating, different ways you can use your clothing to help you stay afloat. Uh, they suggested don't let go of anything. You keep all your stuff because if you're out there by yourself, every bit of gear or piece of something you have will help you survive that much more. In your survival vest, all your stuff was tied to it, so if you dropped it, you wouldn't go to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we learned what were called PLFs or parachute landing falls because some people said, I, don't know, I, was a hel- I was destined to be a helicopter crewman. I didn't know it at the time, but... Uh, I wouldn't be parachuting out of any aircraft. We don't have ejection seats in helicopters. You know, one we, basically you ride it in. Um, but you know, everyone got top parachute landing falls, how to land properly. Another thing we were we were taught was um, how to describe it. It's how to get yourself out if you parachute into the ocean, land in the ocean. Your parachute fills. With air and starts dragging you across the water, you are taught a, an escape maneuver from your parachute harness. Um, that was actually one of the more interesting training exercises. Also happened later in the course. They had this special boat rigged up with parachute harness on a hoist or crane thing hanging out over the end of this boat. And the boat would be tooling along slowly but surely. And you'd be hanging from here like you're floating from a parachute. And the instructor would look at you and you'd pull this little lever into the water you'd drop. And the boat would take off, dragging you through the water. So the first thing you'd do is flip yourself over on your back. Spread your feet apart so you wouldn't flip back over again. Simulate that you're inflating your flotation because you really didn't have inflatable flotation at the time. Um, and then go through the process of disconnecting your parachute harness and rolling out of it while the boat travels on down down the bay then they set up the next victim and do it all over again of course then you're floating in this water and a helicopter comes along and they did what they what they call the tea bag where the helicopter would drop a, a rescue harness into the water you're supposed to put yourself in it give them the thumbs up they would lift you up out of the water dip you back into the water lift you out one more time then drop you back in you're supposed to get out of the harness and they would float hover on over to the next guy and do it over again and after that along would come a follow-along or chase boat, and they'd pull you in the chase boat, and then you'd sit there and wait for them to go through all 20 guys for this little exercise. It was actually a lot of fun. It was a nice sunny day, not too cold, um, a very effective model. It was, it was a very good simulation of what to expect if you parachute in the water and get drug along. Let's see what else did they teach you. Um, 
he taught you well we did land survival training that that was like the very last week of the class see what else oh boxing lessons that's right but the boxing lessons six boxing lessons which is really three boxing lessons and three boxing matches so for the now and they tell you the reason you take boxing lessons is because it's one of those things that helps you get used to thinking under pressure they want you to be able to uh, be faced with just about any myriad of problem and react calmly so I guess I guess there's no better test than seeing how calm you are. People's fists are flying at your face, but you know, at that point, you know you sign up for this gig, and you just fixed in your head that I'm gonna take whatever they shove at me and try my best and get through it. So yeah, three boxing lessons where you learn to do the speed bag, learn to do the heavy bag, you toss a medicine ball around, jump rope, all these little stations where you would move through these little stations for an hour and a half, two hours at a time. Um, so three of that. And then boxing lesson number four was really they started matching people up by weight. Now at the time, I was, well, I'd still be, but at that time I was not it's necessarily heavy, but I was one of the four biggest guys in the class. So us four big guys... We were, we were down in our end. We had to fight each other, and everyone else from a, from a sliding scale would have more sparring partners to choose from. So the first guy I got to fight was... Actually, I can't remember his name now. But we were friendly to each other, so we weren't really training serious blows. We were just kind of you know, tapping gloves and you know, playfully hitting each other in the side of the head because you're wearing the the headgear and the mouthpiece and all that stuff and the gloves aren't heavy gloves so you just we're just kind of goofing around and the instructor who is a ref would tell us okay come on guys you know apply what you've learned apply your training and start boxing and we'd box and we'd do whatever okay so that was the first the second boxing match i was paired up with a guy and we didn't quite see to eye to eye I thought he was a, a jerk, and he probably thought I was, you know, a snob. I don't know. But we, we very rarely, we didn't get along too well. And it was almost like you could see the joy in each other, each other's eyes. Okay, I'm going to actually get to fight someone that I really would like to, you know, give, give a punch in the nose. So we're, you know, that boxing match, we were pretty much trading blows as best we could, head, body, chest. It was... Very interesting to be fighting someone in a training in- environment that really wants to hurt you. <laughs> Very funny. It was. I look back now. I'm sure back then, twenty some odd years ago, I I was probably very nervous and and wasn't enjoying it all that much. But looking back, I think I'm glad I got to land a couple blows to his head. But our very last boxing match, I was back with the first guy. And we're doing the same thing over and over again. You just kind of trade and blows. And, the, and this time the, the ref steps in. So, okay, look. Do you guys know each other? Because I don't know you guys. Now, when I say box, I want you to box. And, not, and, and I don't want to see two guys who know each other. So, he goes, okay, now box. And I look at my, my buddy and he looks at me. And he, he kind of shrugs with his eyes with like, sorry. And just full on smacks me in the side of the head as hard as he could. <laughs> and then the fight was on. We actually had... <laughs> And one of the smaller dudes, the Marine, was fighting some guy, some older guy with glasses. And he knocked him out. Full-on roundhoused him and just knocked him out. Only knockout we had in our boxing matches. But 
again, just a silly exercise to make you think or see how well you can think with pressure or deal with pressure, whatever. What other interesting thing of note was there in Naval Air Crew Candidate School? Um, oh, we were neighbors to the aviation officer candidates. Those were the guys, again, the film officer and gentleman. That was the school that your main character is going through was aviation officer candidate school. So the AOCS people, they lived across the street. Well, some of them did above the chow hall. Some of them lived farther away. So we would, we'd see these guys all the time getting harassed by their drill instructor. Oh, he, they would mess with these guys, something serious. You know, they're in their green suits with these silver helmets. And they had to take their helmets off in a certain fashion. They'd be lined up in front of the chow hall and he would give the, the drill instructor, give them a command and they'd have to fling their helmets out into the grass and then run inside and eat. And, you know, they have their name on big tapes so of their stuff was there and they could come back out and find it. Well, we'd watch the Marine drill instructor. He'd pick a couple of his favorites and hide their helmets in the bushes, you know. <laughs> so they'd come out of the chow hall and they couldn't find their helmet. He's just riding them. What's wrong with you? Calling them all kinds of names. <laughs> what are you, stupid or something? Can't find you. So there's only two guys left. Everyone else found their helmet. They're all formed up in their little their little formation. These two guys can't find it. Finally, they find it in the bushes, you know, because they realize the guy's messing with them. But it was just funny to watch. Let's see what else. Um, we had a hurricane roll through the outskirts of a hurricane or was a tropical storm. I should probably actually check my... I could check some storm data and find out what it was, but it pretty much rained like crazy. And again, we didn't stop class. We had to run from... We probably were going to the pool or something for some swimming test. or I don't know. We ran, got completely soaked, ran back. We still had to go somewhere else. So our PT gear was out of the question. Wouldn't be able to dry it in time. Not enough dryers to dry 20 guys worth of stuff. So we put on um, dungarees, working uniform. Had to march to the next class again in the pouring rain. That was uh, I'm actually surprised no one no one got sick. Um, and then the last the last bit of training was land survival training. Land survival started in a classroom. They would show you pictures of of plants you could eat in the area. What kind of where to find food? How to make little snares for squirrels? How to catch fish? How to do this? How to do that? Your parachute. If you're lucky to have one, is a shelter. You can take the string out and make fish nets. You can, you can make fishing lines. You can do all kinds. I mean, they taught you how to take what you have on your person when you land or crash in the jungle, forest, whatever, desert, snow, and how to make it until help help arrived. Now, in the ideal situation, you know, help's going to show up pretty quick. But you know, wartime, who knows? Help might not show up as quick as you might think. So. Again, they taught you how to do that. And that culminated with spending the night out in the forest or in the woods of Eglin Air Force Base, which is some distance away from Naval Air Station Pensacola. Eglin had some land preserve areas. Um, so they'd take you, form a little class. So we had some aviation officer candidates with us. We had some other officers with us. The class was a mixture of... oh. They put us into groups, two or three groups. Our group was like 16 people, but it wasn't all Naval Air Crew Candidate guys. It was some Naval Air Crew Candidate guys, some ALCS guys, you know, officers transitioning, going through, whatever. Now, they showed us how to, what plants to eat. Well, let me tell you something. Every week, whatever day it was, Tuesday, Wednesday, 
let's say Wednesday. Every Wednesday throughout the year, 16 guys are dropped in this piece of land hoping to fend for themselves, right? And they taught us how to kill, catch and eat snakes. They taught us how to catch and eat armadillos. And they taught us how to catch and eat this and how to pick the food. Well, the food's picked over. I'm sorry, but the armadillos, they were, they left a long time ago. <laughs> you know, the snakes, nowhere to be found. The food picked over because, cl- again, a class was there just a week ago. All right, so... uh Actually, what they do, they gave us, someone did catch, someone did catch a snake, so they traded us a snake for some uh, regular beef to make beef jerky. So we made a little jerky smoker out of some parachute material. Uh, everyone, we got some rice, because again, there's no food, to, real food to be eaten. They just couldn't have a star, so we had rice to cook. And basically, during the day, we walked around, we tried to set up a couple squirrel traps, we foraged for food, and then the rest of the time, we... We erected a shelter made out of parachutes. They gave us like three parachutes. We made a big canopy, a couple little tents, set up, made fire. Basically just kind of sat around. Some guys would forage around. But basic the idea is to really just kind of rest. Not rest, but don't expend energy. You don't need to. Once you got shelter, food, fire, you wait for rescue to come, right? So we spent the night out there. Next day we go back home, clean up. And graduation was on Friday. And when did we graduate? We graduated in February. Because the course was only five weeks long. We graduated on February, Friday, February 25th. And at that point, we were shipped on to our next duty station, which was uh, AWA school at NAS Memphis, or NATTC Millington, Naval Air Technical Training Center Millington. Um, what else did I want to... Okay, okay, so now... I failed to mention this early. Uh, classes, Naval Air Crew Candidate School classes convened every Monday. Every Monday, a new class convened, unless it was a holiday. Then it convened Tuesday, of course, right? And they would make up the syllabus because every Friday was graduation. Again, unless it was a holiday, and then I, I think they did it Thursday, day early. So every Monday, a class. So we were 8315, the next class, 8316, So five classes were going through at any given time. We'd all line up every Friday. Oh, that was the other thing. Every Friday afternoon, or is it morning? Every Friday morning was full-on dress blues inspection. All five classes were out there. We'd get in- inspected by our class instructors, and then uh, was the officer in charge of the school would come by and give us inspection every every Friday in. These were these inspections. Now, coming out of basic training, you think you're prepared, but a Naval Air Crew Candidate School inspection was 10 times tougher than any basic training uniform inspection. It was crazy the things they expected you to have ready. But being a, a new recruit, no rank on my sleeve, no ribbons or medals to wear, it was pretty easy f- for me just to wear the uniform properly. Make sure my shoes were signed really good. Make sure my my neckerchief was tied right, and I wouldn't have a problem. Some of the guys who'd been around for a while, their uniforms would seriously get in trouble. So yeah, every week, every Monday class convened. Now, that's just the way the pipeline or or that school worked. Some some schools the, the classes would convene at different intervals. But if you fail to test. At Naval Air Crew Candidate School, be it a book test like CPR or first aid, 
or the C course or the o, or the O course that you ran your last week of the school, you would be sent back to the class behind you. Yes. <laughs> we had, for example, we lost a guy. He was one of our roommates. When we moved out of our temporary rooms into our wing, because every class has a wing or a section, we're in our wing of the barracks. It's the it's a CPR test, the end of the first week, Thursday, Friday, towards the end of the first week of, of training. He fails it. They tell him, okay, you're now part of class 8316. Grab your stuff, move out of that room, and they moved him into the wing for that class. And he gets a try again. The thing is, if you don't pass it the second time, you're out. You are sent out of the school. You lose whatever training you were guaranteed by your entrance in the Navy. And you'd go out to the fleet as a non-designated airman, which usually meant you'd end up on an aircraft carrier helping chalk and chain aircraft. So it behooved you to pay attention to class. And it behooved you to try your you know, 115, 120, whatever it took in the physical aspects and do everything they said because um, getting re- <laughs> expecting to fly, failing out of the, the first course you attended or the first training school and being sent out to the fleet to, with no job. You'd have no job. You're undesignated. That's kiss of death. One day you're getting ready to be a helicopter crewman or whatever. Next day you're stuck on the ground deploying on the USS whatever. Okay, let's see. Talked about some of the highlights of Air Crew Canada at school. I'm sure I've forgotten some things. One of the aspects of putting this podcast together is to try to bring those memories back, get them recorded for my own posterity. And in going through this and thinking about certain things, I've, I've talked about some of the fun stuff. I completely glossed over the fact that we didn't have civilian clothes. We had to be, we had to go out in uniform all the time. We went out, on, I think I went out of the town once and for the Navy, Pensacola had a pretty good nightlife. There was some... Pensacola is the cradle. Naval Air Station Pensacola is the cradle of naval aviation. All naval aviators roll through Pensacola at one point or another. Early on, the pilots are trained there. There's three training squadrons. The aviation officer candidates are there learning their stuff. You had us there. They ultimately closed down NAS Memphis and moved all the air technical training to Pensacola. So Pensacola Cradle Naval, Naval Aviation. Lots of stuff. Lots of history. Because that's where they've been teaching Naval Aviators to fly for forever. Lots of stuff going on out in town. I never got to experience it. Basically because I was a new recruit. Didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to get around it. Didn't have the money. All kinds of stuff conspired against me. There's lots of stuff that I've I've either failed to mention or forgotten or don't think that you're interested in hearing. Um... But Naval Air Crewman Candidate School was the first stop in my training pipeline. It uh, was an, uh, very much an eye-opening experience because I went from a place where I had no privilege to a place to having all the privilege. I mean, in basic training, you had to ask to use a soda. You had to ask, well, you weren't even allowed to they'd tell you, okay, we're having a soda break, well, you can buy a soda now. Other than that, tough luck. Get to Naval Air Canada School, I can't the vending machines all I wanted. We had pizzas delivered for crying out loud. Um, use the phone anytime you want. So it was it was from no freedom to 100% freedom. And uh, it was a little hard getting used to. I think I'm going to wrap up 
wrap up the Naval Air Crew Candidates Goal Talk here. I've hit the highlights. Uh, I'm actually running a little bit long here. If you want to get a hold of me, send me an email at navalaircrew at gmail.com. Navalaircrew at gmail.com. If you went through Naval Air Crewman Candidate School in 1983, late 82, even up to 1984, I suppose, and you want to add to some of my memories here, maybe I've forgotten something that you think is important or some aspect of Naval Air NACCS that you think should be known, send me an email. Tell me about it. I'll start the show with emails so it can be part of this history that I'm recording with this project. Anything else you want to talk to me about or tell me about or whatever, again, navalaircrew at gmail.com. My name is Mike. I'm your host. I'm going to sign off now. Be safe. God bless. God bless.